The Be Yourself and Love It podcast is dedicated to bringing you practical tools for improving your well-being, and we certainly have a host of those today. I hope you enjoy episode four. Hello, I am here with Robert Najemi, author of 24 books and a life coach for 35 years who's worked with over 20,000 people. He is also the coach for life coaches and teaches them through his work at the Center of Harmonious Living in Athens, Greece. Hi, Robert. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Anthony. Thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into what you're doing. Well, actually, it's been about 45 years now. Um, I was a chemical engineer. And after working for a few years for a large uh, international chemical company, I decided it wasn't my life calling. And so I gave myself some time to search for a meaning in life. And one of the main meanings that I have found is the process of evolution, starting out with my own evolutionary process, and then becoming useful for other people's evolutionary process. I consider that we are here to, to undertake a transformation in our belief systems and only when our belief systems are evolved then can we create the reality that we all desire a loving reality a happy reality an abundant reality so that's in a nutshell why i'm doing what i'm doing okay you want to bring a higher evolution to the world and more happiness yes what kind of belief systems do you find most hold people back in this evolutionary process? Fear is the greatest problem. The belief that we need to protect ourselves from other people through various strategies, such as playing the, the victim or the inquisitor or the abuser in some way. Our fear of being hurt, our fear of losing our self-worth, or our security or our freedom causes us to behave in ways to other people that we would not like them to behave towards us. Then this then creates an inner sense of guilt and we're not in a state of love either for ourselves or for other people. So my main objective is to help people to accept and love themselves as they are while they continue to improve themselves and get free from various faults and secondly to feel secure and safe in a loving universe and that means feeling first of all our, our our eternal self that there is no death that's an important aspect of becoming fearless and also that our self-worth is something which is uh to be taken for granted and it's a, a god-given birthright that we all deserve love and respect from all people and from ourselves and others deserve our love and respect regardless of our weaknesses hmm. these are two main i think we need to help to help us out so i noticed um, one of the things you said is to love ourselves while continuing to improve ourselves and indeed some people might think that it's their the, the part that thinks they're not good enough is the part that's motivating themselves to get better but actually you can improve yourself out of love you know if you really love someone you want the best for them and if you really love yourself then you want the best for yourself and 
growth stops being a process of trying to become good enough and starts being a process of trying to attain to your highest potential. Exactly. I agree 100% with you. I would have said the same thing. It's like a painting, for example. If we're, if we're in the middle of a painting, it's not finished, but it's exactly what it can be and needs to be at this evolutionary process as the painting evolves. So we wouldn't reject the painting. It's not unworthy. It's just not finished. So none of us are unworthy, but we're simply not finished. We're in the process. Right, I hear you. So for those of us who are somewhere in the process, bouncing between fearfulness, reactiveness, and guilt, what are the first steps for us to begin to break these patterns and start attaining to a more happy and conscious way of life? These patterns need to be solved where they were created, and that's in our childhood years. So we do a lot of work with what we call healing the inner child, that is going back, reliving, re-experiencing those experiences in the past that caused us to doubt our self-worth and also to doubt how safe we are and to uh, go through experiencing those and to remove the emotional charge perhaps with EFT or BSFF or TAT or in general various forms of regression and relive those experiences and reinterpret them because the past does not exist. The only thing that exists is our interpretation of what happened. And usually we interpret that we are not worthy and that's why we didn't get the love we wanted to get or that we were not safe. And so as we go back and heal these, then we can change our present belief system. Okay, so let's take us through an example of how this transpires so people at home could imagine doing something similar for themselves. Okay. Say, for example, I had an experience in which no one paid attention to me or they accused me or uh, abused me or rejected me. My natural assumption as a child would be that I am not worthy and that I deserve this kind of behavior. So what we do is we go back, we find the beliefs that were created, we, we re-experience those emotions, and then we go through the process of releasing those emotions, perhaps by some kind of emotional release, but eventually through energy psychology by doing EFT or BSFF for the experience that is saying, even though I felt this pain or this self-rejection, I love and accept myself and I want to become free from this. So or we use the BSFF for all of the emotions that may have been involved. Or we use the TAT, which has seven steps in which we go through reliving that experience and even putting ourselves in the position of the other who was behaving in this way and we go through a process of healing by forgiving the other and forgiving ourselves. Then we want to create a new belief as we have removed the old one. It's like erasing something, a, a, a file from your hard disk. And I want to create a new file. And here we use various affirmations and sometimes uh, affirmations that is 
what I call inspired questions. Why is it that I deserve love and respect? Or why is it that I am safe? And we use these questions which, which in one sense declare a certain reality that I am worthy or that I am safe. But I now require myself to answer that question. I just don't say I am worthy or I am safe. I ask why am I worthy? Why am I safe? And then I make a list of all of the reasons, practical, logical, and spiritual reasons that I can think of which answer that question, why I am worthy of being loved and respect, or why I am safe. And then we do this process of putting the body in a certain position or using the healing code positions or other positions in which help greater energy flow between the right and left hemispheres of the brain. And then we work with this question, this inspired question, asking ourselves and then letting these answers come into the mind. And so what we're doing is, in the first part, we release the emotional tension around those original experiences. And now we are strengthening a new perception with the use of this question and the answers and, and focusing on them for about five to ten minutes. And then imagining ourselves experiencing that sense of self-worth or that sense of security or freedom or fulfillment, even in the situations in the past where we did not and also in the situations in the present where we tend not to feel that way. And so we do some positive visualization here. So that's one example of how we work. Wow, that sounds really comprehensive and wonderful. So what results have you seen from people going through this kind of process? Very good results because what we're doing is we're working on many levels. We're first of all, removing the cause. Now that may take some time. We don't encourage people to be very uh, hasty about forgiving. Our ultimate goal is forgiveness because forgiveness releases us from the past and from our own pain and forgiving others and ourselves. We encourage them first to express what they're feeling. That could be through a catharsis process or through a writing letters or doing psychodrama, finding someone to play the part of the other person. And then after we've done the release, then we go into the process of healing that with energy psychology, as I mentioned, with EFT, BSFF, or TAT. So, and when we can remember that experience, just one minute, and when we can remember that experience and not have the emotional charge, or it's out of one to 10, say one or two or three, then we move on to the reprogram. So that's how we work. Okay, great. Now, I think that there will be a contingent, myself included for some of these, that are not familiar with all these phrases, EFT, BSF, and TAT. Yeah. And it would be a lost opportunity if I didn't ask you to explain these in more detail. Okay, EFT is pretty much well known now. Uh, it actually, it's even covered by the um, health system in England and in America created by Gary Craig, it's a process of tapping on certain acupuncture points on the face and on the hands, and now even we tap on the head also, in order to change the energy flow by getting the energy flowing through the, the meridians of the acupuncture meridians while we're focused on the event and on the emotion. And it has been found that this actually changes 
our energy field that's associated with the specific event. So the first thing we do is change that energy field by doing this tapping while focusing on the event of the past or even something that happened yesterday. The BSFF, uh, created by Larry Nims, both of those are students of uh, Roger Callahan, who created the TFT, Thought Field Therapy. And all these words can be found on the internet and on our site, www.harmonicizuri.com. Can you just spell that for people? A-R-M-O-N-I-K-I-Z-O-I.com. Right. All of those techniques are mentioned there. Now, the BSFF is where you tap on those same points while referring to specific emotions, such as pain and fear and guilt and anger and also trauma. And then you work through this process of releasing all of those emotions related to a certain event. And in the BSFF, actually we start out with an agreement with the subconscious that the subconscious will include other events that we're not aware of that have to do with the same problem. Whether that works or not, I'm not sure. We, we use it and we hope that it works. It's not different, very much different from the prayer that's used in the Healing Code by uh, Alex Lloyd, where he asks the divine to remove all known and unknown cellular memories and false beliefs which are creating the problem. So it's, there are a lot of similarities between these methods. Now the TAT is created by Tapas Fleming, also a student of Roger Callahan, which we go through seven steps by placing the hand on certain acupuncture points. But we have found that just placing the hands on the heart center can be equally effective. Mm -hmm. And the seven steps are to remember the event. This is used very much in, in the case of trauma, such as rape or physical abuse or even war, this method. Hmm. We remember the emotions we had in the traumatic experience. Then we, the second stage is to remember them, but to create alternative perceptions of that. That is that we are safe, we are worthy. The other person is being controlled by their ignorance, by their fear, by their childhood experiences. And if if someone believes this, that we are immortal souls who have chosen the experiences that we go through. So we, we try to create alternative beliefs about this event. The third stage is to allow ourselves to be cleansed of all causes of that event and anything in us that would attract that event again, a similar event. Because we tend to attract over and over the same events that we don't heal. And the fourth is to allow ourselves to be healed from all of the effects of that event on us, on our body, on our image of ourselves, on our image of other people, um, our relationship to sex, to money, to God, whatever, have, may have been affected by that event. The fifth stage is to identify with the perpetrator, the, the person who has done this to us, and try to experience their reality, their emotions, their fears, their programmings at the time that they were behaving in this way. The fifth stage is to forgive the other, and the sixth stage, the sixth stage is to forgive, and the seventh is to forgive ourselves. 
And if we're working on self-forgiveness, then we do the same process in a similar way, but also forget ourselves and forgive the others. So these are three methods, EFT, BSFF, and TAT, Gary Craig, Larry Nims, and Thomas Fleming, that can be found on the internet and are very effective for releasing the emotional pain from the past. Can you speak a little bit about the importance of forgiveness as you see it? Because one thing you said earlier is that you don't tend to rush people around forgiving, but you clearly think that it's something that's important. In my experience as a counselor, I think one of the a very deleterious thing you could do is to ask someone to forgive someone before they're ready to do that. And people can very much perceive that as invalidating their experience. I've heard of people being very badly wounded by a practitioner trying to force them to forgive someone else. So can you just tell me your philosophy of, like, I'll, I'll put my views out there and you can tell me if you agree or disagree. I usually see forgiveness, and there's lots of ways we could define forgiveness, as a consequence of the healing process rather than part of the healing process itself. And what I mean by forgiveness is it just doesn't take that much time or any time in your consciousness anymore. It's like you don't need to think about it anymore because you're over it, not because you're repressing it. If someone wanted you to talk about it, you'd still be able to talk about it without getting overly emotional. And it doesn't necessarily mean condoning the other person's behavior and saying that it was right. It's just that it's out of your system. You're, you're ready to move on. Um, do you have a the same or a different interpretation of forgiveness and what's your philosophy of forgiveness and why is it important? Well, yes, I agree with everything that you said. And that's why we ask people first to cleanse and to heal. And then forgiveness, as you said, is a natural um, result of that. Um, we also, so we're not doing this psychology. We're also teaching some spiritual truths. And those spiritual truths help, truths help some people. Not everyone is open to those mm. perceptions. And so we don't force them on anyone. And so we say, whatever logical or perception you can create or spiritual perception, it helps you to overcome this. Now, this is why we start with the release. First of all, they may cry, they may shout, they may hit a pillow, um, they may do psychodrama and explain and express it to the person how angry and how hurt they are. These things happen before. And they may start out with writing a letter to that person. Whether they give it or not is not important to us. It's important that they express, they find the strength to express what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you that this needs to be cleansed first. Otherwise, it's like polishing the floor without actually sweeping it and mopping it. Yes. You just, you just close it all in. Yes. And so that's going to create psychosomatic problems later. And so well, we expand this to people. And we say, first, be, be sure that you're in a stage where you can do this. Now, there are some obstacles to forgiveness, and perhaps I could speak of those for a minute. First of all, I would like to see a very interesting video on the internet, which I have downloaded and showed, of a woman in St. Louis, Minneapolis, in America, who 
sought out and forgave the, the murderer of her son after 17 years in which the young boy who murdered her son after he spent 17 years in prison. And they, uh, and she was able to forgive him. And she said, I did not forgive him for him. I forgave for myself because not forgiving is like a cancer which was eating me inside. Hmm. So we really need to understand that forgiveness is not for the other person, it's for us. And these two people actually go around teaching forgiveness now, the mother hmm. and the murderer of her son. It's a very interesting video. You could probably find wow. it. And I show this to explain, okay, if this woman can forgive the murderer of her son, can we forgive someone who, who spoke negatively about us and this kind of thing? So what are those obstacles? One obstacle is the fear of being hurt again. So to be able to forgive, I need to feel secure enough. And to feel secure enough, I need to feel that my self-worth and my security and my freedom are safe and that there's no way this other person can harm me. And the only way to do that is not to need anything from the other person. Mm. So well, uh, one, step, one step is to get free from needing or expecting anything from the other person. So then I feel safe. The second is confusing forgiveness with, with saying that they weren't wrong. We're forgiving their wrongness. We're forgiving their inability to function in a proper way. So it's not saying that they weren't wrong and that we were wrong. It's just saying that that you were unable to do that. You were being controlled by certain illusions, perceptions, emotions. And I forgive you for that, as I would like someone to forgive me. As Christ said, whoever has not sinned, let him throw the first stone. So uh, the second is that forgiving does not mean that you are not wrong. It means forgiving the other for wronging you. The third obstacle we find is that I, I, I'm using non-forgiveness as an excuse for not getting on with my life. Hmm. That is, uh, I have a reason for not being well. And the reason I'm not well is what someone else has done. And because I'm not happy with my reality, I am choosing not to forgive because I need someone else to be responsible for the fact that I'm not happy with my reality. And so for us, uh, forgiveness, a strong, a large part of forgiveness is taking responsibility for our reality and that uh, I do not need a reason not to be well at this time. I mean, I can forgive the other and get on with my life. So I agree with you that we don't want to cause anybody to uh, we're not negating the wrongness and the injustice that has taken place. We're accepting that, yes, you were definitely done injustice to. But it's in your own benefit to let go of this. So this is how we approach it. Yes, and we've heard that turn of phrase, resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. So <laughs> it's yeah. a good one. And I... I I have experienced that that people can also use forgiveness as um, well. They might think they've forgiven someone, but actually they're just using it as a repression, yeah. uh, so they don't have to face their emotions of outrage or anger or any emotions that they might think 
we're wrong uh, or we're taught not to feel and they say oh well I've just forgiven that person and that's like your analogy of putting polish and the floor we caution people about this we we tell them right. not this is not very good you need to first get in touch with those emotions and, and express them and it really happens to people that are on a spiritual path often and don't do the psychological work because we do a combination of psychological and spiritual work but people that do only spiritual work tend to suppress because they well you know since i'm a spiritual person i shouldn't be feeling that way so I'm not feeling that way, but that's not the truth. Right. So if I'm in a dis state of disassociation, or if I'm sitting there, I want to heal, but I don't know what to do. Um, how do I start getting in touch with something that I can work with? Well, one way would be to remember our childhood remember events. Another would be regressions would take place. Some people use rebirthing. I don't know if you're with the holotropic breathing, uh, fast breathing, which brings the emotions up to the, to the surface. Another is a Greek phrase which says, wherever there is smoke, there is fire. So uh, if you see that you're feeling upset, because uh, most people will not recognize why they're upset, but if they're feeling upset, they need to start sinking into themselves and say, okay, why am I upset? Why does this behavior bother me? Why does the thought of this person, person bother me? So if, if someone just takes a little time to do some self-knowledge, that is keeping a diary or writing our emotions or writing our feelings, all of these will bring this up to the surface. Right, and if I'm experiencing a resentment, what do you think would be a good approach? I notice I'm feeling very resentful or I'm feeling fuming at a person. What is something that I can do then and there if I can isolate myself to use that outrage as a opportunity for deeper healing? I would start with, a with expression. I would say, please sit down and write what you're feeling and write to that person and tell that person what you're feeling. Then I would say, okay, now close your eyes, imagine that person in front of you and speak to them. And so uh, this, the process of writing and speaking will bring this up to the surface. The third step would be for me to play the role of that person and do psychodrama. And so that I would, you know, with my questions or my behavior, help that person to express even more completely what they're feeling and when what they need so i would the first step for me would be expression the second step would be the methods that we talked about later the the healing methods of eft and these other methods yes i'm a big fan of journaling and i journal almost every day mm -hmm. um, and it's amazing what you can get access to mm -hmm. just by writing what's in your mind what you're feeling what you're thinking about uh, you tend to go a layer deeper and it also helps with uh, repetitive thoughts you know if the same thing keeps on going on in your head again and again journaling about it's a really good way to make room in your mind for other things for other wisdom to start coming in because your mind doesn't have to remind you 
of the same things over and over again because it's like, right, I've got those, I've written about those. And that's definitely a great tool. So you have a series of videos on YouTube under yeah. the title of The Psychology of Happiness. In fact, you've got lots of series of videos on YouTube that people can check out if they want to learn more from you. Could you tell me the purpose of those videos on the psychology of happiness and what you wanted to communicate to people in broad terms before we dive in to a little bit more detail? Yes, uh, the psychology of happiness is actually the name of, of one of my first books. At, at the present, I have 34 books in Greece, in Greek, and mm -hmm. eight books have been published in English. They're, they're all on Amazon, except the Greek books are not. Greek books are available here in Greece only. But the psychology of happiness, uh, in, one, in some ways, is based on the, the 12 Pathways to Higher Consciousness by Ken Kais and the work of Abraham Maslow, who studies self-actualized persons. But it's also based on yoga philosophy and psychology and the work of Patanjali. And it's all based on the idea that our emotions are created by our beliefs. So if you want to create a different reality, if you want to feel differently about yourself in life, you need to change your belief system. So we, there's a way which, which, which these four boxes in which you place one box, you place the event, the stimulus. In the third box, you place the emotion, what emotions you're feeling towards that stimulus. It could be something that you thought about from the past or some thought about the future or something someone said or something that happened in your life. And that's the stimulus. And the emotion that we have about the stimulus is actually not an automatic thing. We experience it as automatic, but it's created by a belief. There's something we believe about the stimulus, which causes us to feel the way that we do, either happy or unhappy, angry or fearful. So the whole process of getting free is understanding what belief is creating this emotion. Now, when a negative emotion is created, it's because there is a belief which we call an attachment. That is, this belief is saying, "My hap I need to have something very specific for me to be happy, for me to feel my self-worth, for me to feel secure, for me to feel free, whether my life has purpose or that I have control over things. And so this is called an attachment. It could be a security attachment or a pleasure attachment or a self-worth attachment, an affirmation attachment. So when something happens that's not fulfilling this attachment and is putting my attachment in danger, as far as my perception goes, then I have negative feelings. So the question is, what am I attached to here, which is causing me to have these negative feelings? The next step would be to ask myself, is it true? Is it true that my self-worth is in danger here, or that my security, or my freedom, or my control, or whatever it is that I need? And in most cases, it's not true. It's a programming. So the psychology of happiness is the process of understanding the beliefs which create pain, and asking ourselves if we want to change them. Now, in our seminars, we do not tell anyone that they need to change anything. We ask them. Do you want to change that belief? And if they say no, okay, then we say, okay, then keep the belief. 
Um, if they say, yeah, I'd like to get free from this belief, then we introduce them to ways to changing that belief. So the psychology of happiness is how to change our belief system so that we can create greater happiness. So what what is happiness? Obviously that happiness is could probably be described more by what it isn't than it is, but it's a state in which I feel content. Contentment is a part of happiness. I think self-acceptance, that, that I am feeling grateful. Gratitude is a large part of happiness. Um, that I'm okay with myself, with my life, with other people. Acceptance is a strong part of happiness. But not the kind of acceptance which is like letting go, but that is accepting things that are painful to us. It means accepting things as they are uh, as a step towards changing them if we decide they need to be changed. For example, I need to accept the death of a loved one. There's nothing I can change there. I need to accept that and be okay with that and continue with my life and be happy again. But I can change my health. I can change my economic situation. I can probably change the state of many of my relationships. So for me, happiness is having what we want. And there's two solutions to that. One is needing very little, having few attachments. Uh, we, we make a distinction between attachment and preference. We can have as many preferences as we like. Uh, preferences don't create pain when they're not satisfied. Attachments create pain when they're not satisfied. So I either have to transform my attachments to preferences or become very capable of creating the reality that I want. Now we teach both. We teach how you can be happy even when conditions are not as you like them and find inner self-worth, inner security, inner fulfillment, and also how to more effectively uh, create the reality that you want by visualization, by gratitude, by various uh, methods of creating. So it's both accepting and creating. Great, great. So I think a lot of suffering comes from two things. One is a sort of low-grade depression that people just experience. And the other is anxiety, which people don't necessarily identify as anxiety, but leads to them just being generally in a state of rushing, a little bit impatient, reactive to the environment and so forth. And maybe our listeners can identify and see if these two things are sometimes something that they experience as well. It's very hard to grasp because it sometimes fades into the background. You know, sometimes you get a very intense emotion in your chest or your stomach or your throat or your back or you have a headache. And those sensations are very gross. And so they're easy to identify, comparatively easy. They might not be easy for everyone to identify if they're new to this kind of work and they're quite disassociated for their emotions. But for that kind of low grade in the background stuff, do you have any, does for people to get in touch with subtle unpleasant emotions that are just always in the background somehow and a path for us to 
working with them and releasing them so we feel less anxious or less depressed? Yeah, uh, we do. We have uh, deep relaxation processes in which we go into the energy body and try to sense the, the emotions that are stored in the specific parts of the energy body. So we start out by relaxing the physical body. Then we go to the parts of the physical body that are experiencing this pressure that you mentioned. It could be the chest, the face, the legs, the arms, the neck, throat. And then we begin to feel and accept the energy in that area. And then to allow ourselves to feel the emotions that are in that area. And through the emotions, perhaps even the stimuli, which are causing those emotions. So it's a deep relaxation process in which we move into ourselves and get in touch with the physical body, the energy body, and then the emotional body. Sometimes when we do that, we can actually also go back into the past and discover when that emotion was first created. And then what we do is we uh, establish in a communication with that part of ourselves. So as we ask that part of the body what it needs from us, how and when it was created, first of all, and what it needs from us, what we can do to help it. Um, and that usually has to do with loving ourselves, accepting ourselves, and caring more for ourselves. And then we allow our love and our light to flow into that part of the body as a healing process. So it's what we call the, the energy relaxation in which we get in touch with the energy body. We also use this for illnesses also, when someone is ill, we try to discover the psychosomatic causes of that illness. And it's quite effective. And it's a, it's a research technique to discover what's happening, but also a healing technique at the end. Now, as far as the depression goes, for me, the solution for depression is to discover our life purpose. Anyone who connects with their reason for incarnating will not feel depression. And why do we not have contact with that? Because we have accepted social programmings which have directed us in another direction. And so we've lost contact with our inner voice and the reason for which we have incarnated. And it's also the reason for all the stress that you mentioned earlier that we have bought this social recipe for happiness and we're trying to fulfill it and we're trying to find our happiness in the way that society says we have to find it through money and acceptance of what other people think of us and our appearance and all these kinds of things where uh, it's probably not the reason why a lot of people have incarnated uh, and so we're doing things that have are not bringing us the happiness that we want and so I would suggest each person to ask themselves this question, what am I doing here? What gives meaning to me? As a chemical engineer, I didn't find meaning. My yeah. other friends, chemical engineers, found meaning and they were happy and they continued until their retirement. And that was fine for them. It just wasn't the reason I incarnated. And it took me some time to find that. And I had to make a choice between money and purpose. Right. And so uh, I'm happy I made that choice. And my belief is that in the end, you get everything that you need. That you don't have to sacrifice money for purpose. You can choose your purpose and whatever you need will come to you. The universe will give you whatever you need. Just find what you love to do. You can't be depressed when you, when you find what you love to do. 
because you're too busy loving doing it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I have a um, particular block around doing what I love to do sometimes. Sometimes it seems the more I, the more important I think something is, the more difficult it is to do. So for example, um, I'm working on some books that I think would be really transformational and helpful to the world. And yet I experience a lot of procrastination around getting down to finishing those. So how could I start in the process of healing the part that wants to that 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 wants to avoid doing these things which which I love and find very fulfilling when I actually get down to? I would start out with a dialogue with that part. Uh, asking, and, and what I do is we, get, we take two pieces of paper. It says one piece of paper is the person that wants to complete the book, the, the, the sub-personality or the persona that wants to complete the book. And another paper we write, the procrastinator. Right. We put them on two chairs. You could either write out the dialogue or do, put out two chairs. And you sit on the one chair, probably the part that wants to finish the book. You say, you know, I really want to finish this book. How are you feeling? What do you feel about the idea of sitting down and writing? And then you sit in the other place, change chairs. You sit in the other chair, and now you're the procrastinator, and you explain to the part that wants to finish why you're procrastinating, what you're afraid of, or what you're feeling. Um, and this dialogue can uh, reveal a lot of information. It's very important that the part that wants to complete doesn't just give a lecture. He needs to do active listening to the part that's procrastinating. He needs to accept and love that part and ask that part what it's feeling and, and give that part a chance to express itself, to express its fears. Now, many times the fear of completing something is a fear of its evaluation in the end. And, you know, it may not be perfect, the fear of the result, whether the result is going to be what we want or the fear of putting ourselves out there in, in front of other people. This often happens with writing anyway, or speaking. So that may be one reason the procrastinator is procrastinating. Another reason may be that it feels suppressed, that it, it associates working with a, a loss of freedom. So you may have to go to a childhood experience that created the procrastinator, that if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, uh, then I'm free. Hmm. And if I do what I'm supposed to do, then I'm not free. I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and I don't want to do that. Another problem is playing the role of the parent and child within ourselves. The parent says, we've got to write the book. The child says, no, I'm not going to do what the parent is saying. So I don't know the causes, but I know that this dialogue will probably reveal it. Right, right. And um, have you heard of internal family systems therapy? No, no I haven't heard of it. I may... The techniques I may be aware of, but I've heard, yes. haven't heard that phrase. Yes. Well, internal family systems therapy holds that our psyche is made of several parts. You know, you might have a inner critic, a procrastinator, and yeah. so forth. And these parts are, are referred to as guardians because they're trying to protect you from something. And yeah. there's, there's a bunch of inner children in there, you know, uh, anxious child, a heart child, a happy child, a joyful child. And usually the job of these protectors in the IFS model is to protect the inner children. Now, I've been working with internal family systems model 
and I have found it more effective than any other counsellors have gone to. Um, so I, I saw an IFS therapist and uh, it sounds very congruent with what you're saying where you literally, in the same way that in family therapy, you get mum, dad, the kids, Aunt Mabel around the table and try and get them to optimise the relationships. In IFS, you engage with your parts and you try and optimise their relationships with one another. Some of the parts that might be giving you trouble might not even really enjoy the job that they're doing. They just feel like they have to do it. And you can end up turning an inner critic into an inner coach, for example, through this process. What I've found is that if I can get in touch with my parts, usually there's a guardian that's speaking very loudly it might be the impatient one. I've got um, got an impatient guardian. And if I can speak to that, then sometimes I can get it to move out the way. And then there'll be one or two other parts that I need to deal with and speak to them and build a relationship with them. And when I can get each of those to move out the way, I'm usually left with a vulnerability. I feel an intense emotion usually in my chest, but it can be in other places. And that's the pain of one of my inner children. That's the pain from some experience in childhood. And I just stay with that sensation and watch it in my body for 10 to 15 minutes. Sometimes it'll take half an hour. It usually doesn't take much longer than that. And then I experience a release of that emotion. And I can see a difference in my psyche over the next week that's very noticeable. It doesn't solve all of my problems, but I, I notice a difference. And uh, one big difference I've noticed is um, not, su so, not such a busy mind as I used to have, uh, a little bit more concentration, less distraction. Um, through this process, I noticed that I've got a part called I call the scheduler. And sometimes when I was doing anything or just trying to be in the present moment, the scheduler doesn't like me not doing things. It wants me to always be doing something useful. So it would come in and start saying, well, later on, I've got to do this. And then after that, I'm going to do this and, and start trying to schedule things for me. But it wasn't always welcome because I might just want to relax and enjoy what I'm doing. I'm, I might want to watch a movie without thinking about later on. So. By getting to know this part, the scheduler, which by the way is a very useful part because I'm a writer and when I'm writing, the scheduler helps me put all my points in the right order. So it's very sequential and people will be able to understand what I'm saying. It's not that I don't like the part, the part's very useful. But now that I'm familiar with it, when, when I'm in any situation and my mind starts scheduling, uh, I, I notice and I'm like, oh, there's my scheduler. And I just say to it, you know, I don't really want to schedule right now. Can you can you please step step aside? You know, we'll schedule later. And and usually it does. So I found this model of, of working with parts to be very useful. And uh, I'm, I'm going to continue doing that. Maybe if I have you on the show again, uh, I'll be able to give you an update. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about your experience with doing parts work with people and, and how that's manifested. Well, you, you saw me smiling because I have a scheduler too. I have to All right. ask him frequently to, to be quiet. Uh, right. um, 
Yeah, what we, we call it inner re reconciliation. Uh, it's a seminar that we do. First of all, we get people to work with the mask and the, the shadow. Right. What they're, what they're trying to uh, show and what they're trying to hide. And to let go of those and to be more honest. And uh, we ask them to write letters to people being more honest, now letting go of the mask and letting and opening up the shadow. So the first conflict we work with is the mask and the shadow. And then we do it verbally also. We ask them to do it verbally. Not to the person, but closing their eyes and imagining that person. And then we work on what we call the subpersonalities, something like what you were mentioned. We don't limit to the, the family. And so there'll be all kinds of, uh, I actually have written a book on this in which I discuss 40 subpersonalities. What is the name of the book? It's called Saram. I'll send you a PDF of it. Thank you. And it's how these subpersonalities got created and then the conflicts that they experience when we become adults in which they want different things. Actually, they all want the same thing, but in different ways. Um, and the various conflicts that that creates and then the process of healing them, which I explained earlier. First of all, we, we allow, we ask people to analyze each subpersonality what they give a name to each supper. You, you named yours the scheduler, okay? And we, we emphasize that it shouldn't be a, a name which incorporates any kind of negative feelings. That's right, it, that's it, right. All subpersonalities should be respected. And that, yes, they were created as a form of survival at some point, even if they don't serve survival anymore. Uh, at some point they were necessary. Um, and that they're all like children within us. And then uh, after they, they analyze the needs, the beliefs, the emotions of each of them, we ask them to do the dialogue. And we, ask, we start with a written dialogue and then a verbal dialogue. And we add a third being, and that is the higher self. So after, after they had discussed between themselves the two conflicting subpersonalities, we ask them to stand up and to become the higher self and to speak to each of the subpersonalities in a way which may help their reconciliation. That is to ask one to have more understanding for the other to explain what each of the subpersonalities needs to understand. And so that's a process that we use in order to help people come to some kind of agreement between subpersonalities which may not be a hundred percent what each subpersonality wants but a compromise uh, of some type that will make their lives less conflicting so this is uh, how we do it we have a, a weekend seminar in which we do that wow that's great so you're doing lots of different seminars and giving people lots of information and processes to attain to their well, higher trying. potential <laughs> we're trying yeah and you also run an online qualification for people who are interested in becoming life coaches for anyone that might be interested in this process which i'm sure will massively help them in their own personal development and also help them with the potential of helping others could you tell us a little bit about that Yes, it's a it's a, a three years course by email, but anyone can just participate for a month or a year, whatever they want to do. But if they want to complete it, and each year has its own certificate, 
The first year is about how to help ourselves and others find the beliefs that need to be transformed and how to transform those beliefs. The second year is about energy psychology and healing those emotions through EFT. And the third year is more detail about effective communication, how to help people who have lost loved ones, how to help people with their relationship conflicts, how to help people with deep relaxation processes. It's uh, more comprehensive. The first year is the most important. And, it, and, and as you mentioned already, there's a great benefit for the person himself. He learns how to help others, but he gains much insight into his own, his own psyche. And if someone wanted to jump on the first year of the course and see if they liked it, where would they find the information to do that? The details are on our website. And then uh, the website is in English and in Greek. They have to go to the English part. And there's a certain link that says become an effective life coach. If they go there, they'll see all the explanation as to what it involves and, and yes. how, how to join. It happens, starts out every October, the beginning it starts of every October. October. So yeah. people have got until October to yeah. decide. And uh, from what I remember, the cost is extraordinarily reasonable as well. You won't get through college on a similar budget. So, <laughs> so it's only $150. And there's wow. a lot of. How do you eat? Well, uh, well, I have other ways. I have the books. You know, I have other ways of surviving. It's only $150, and actually, when people say they don't have any, I say, okay, just start, and if you can ever make a donation, make it. So it's not well, uh, it's not there for the money. We're interested in, in helping people. Well, that's very heartwarming. Um, I just wonder if you ever worry that if people don't invest, then they won't fully value the, what the course has to offer and maybe won't show up to seminars and things like that? You see, we have an interesting system. We have a, what, what, what is called a suggested offering for our seminars. And that is in the last 41 years that I've been offering these seminars, money has never been a prerequisite. We ask people to donate and we specify what we suggest that they donate. But if they don't donate, they can still follow or if they donate less, they can still follow. Uh, I believe that they benefit. And I don't believe in this thing that you have, they have to give a lot of money in order to feel that it's worth it. I discussed this with them and I explained to them that the freedom that we're giving you to donate or not is a part of the seminar and it's a part of your exercise in your own discrimination and free will. And if you're going to go take trips and you're going to smoke cigarettes, which costs about 100 euros a month, and you're not going to make the small donation of 40 euros a month. Actually, we've deducted it here in Greece. It used to be 60. We've brought it down to 40 because people mm. don't have money. Um, it's your choice. It's your free will. But you're not exercising your own discrimination. So we're asking you to really think about what you're getting and what you're doing. It's it's a part of the of the of the seminar itself. Um, having done that, uh, it has worked. I mean, the universe uh, supports us, 
um, because none of us get paid. I don't get paid, and the others don't get paid. The, the group facilitators don't get paid. And in that way, we have actually been able to create three buildings. One is our retreat center, where I am now, which accommodates about 40 to 50 people in lovely rooms. And all of that without having ever made money a prerequisite for someone to follow. So I believe that, or I, see, I mean, I, every day I hear from people how much they're being helped. Yeah. But I see that it works economically, too. Yeah. And so uh, I'm very pleased with the system. Wonderful. Well, you're an inspiration, certainly to me, and I'm sure to many people listening. You may be a candidate for sainthood. Uh, <laughs> I'm far from that, I can tell you that. <laughs> Perhaps making up for past indiscretions and well, shameless behavior. Know. But I'm not suffering at all. So I'm not making up for anything. Everything's fine. Right, I'm just teasing. Well, Robert, thank you so much for coming okay. on my new thank show. Thank you for the opportunity. I, I really enjoyed the opportunity to connect with you again once we did okay. uh, a show on parenting before, which people can look up if they're interested uh, by putting our names into YouTube. So before we head off, just tell people one more time where they can find you. Well, they yeah. can also place my name, Robert Najami, and it will come up thousands of times. That's uh, right. You'll probably go to the link. But also Armoniki Zui, A-R-M-O-N-I-K-I-Z-O-I.com. Wonderful. Okay. And thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Speak again. Be well. All right, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Robert Najemi, what a guy, created a course for you to train if you want to become a life coach. If you're more interested in coaching yourself these days, I myself created a personal development course that I strongly recommend. I can say that if I was given this when I left school, I probably would have saved almost a decade and a half reading self-help books, watching YouTubes, listening to podcasts to try and find the things that really worked. You can find my course at beyourselfandloveit.com under the course tab. You will not regret it. Until next time, be yourself. Well, don't just be yourself. Be yourself and love it.